For the 16th time, this is 99th episode. Join us for a deep dive into Sandman Volume 2. Yeah, you should have published it. That would have been great for Halloween. Oh, man. I mean, it, it was... Not a podcast with the demons. It was to the point where, like, I couldn't even tell what you were saying. Because... You don't need to tell what I'm saying. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. So we were just talking about, uh, well, a couple things for our listeners. One, we lost our last three episodes uh, due to poor quality recordings on my end. 100% my fault, although I'll find somebody else to blame by the end of this episode. My take on it is, oh, well, you know, whatever. It was, It's yeah. all good. But I am slightly bummed about the episode we recorded about hip-hop. Because the last episode people will hear ended with you about to give me recommendations of three hip-hop albums to listen to. Yeah, you know, I was actually thinking about that. And I think that we can um, retouch on that better than we did our first go-round. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think I... I I don't like how I did on that episode. Hmm. Interesting. See, I, I think I could do better because I, I don't know. Like, I just uh, I found myself. Uh, I don't know. Like, it didn't go like I expected it to, and I think I could do better next time. Interesting. See, I I liked it because I was surprised by how it went at times. But I think we did a really cool job of. Well, first of all, to back up, so I listened to these three hip hop albums that Paul recommended. And then we talked about them and we talked about hip hop and the differences I've noticed between hip hop and punk rock and what I liked about these things, what I didn't like about these things and what that means for uh, how to kind of navigate this type of music, which is still somewhat new to me. And I, I just thought what I really liked was how we defined the conversation we were having and then we had the conversation. That was, I think, one of my big takeaways. And I just, I guess I personally learned a lot in the episode. So I really enjoyed that. But unfortunately, it is lost to the digital ether now. And so I remember it. And it was really great. So <laughs> listeners, just, I guess, hold on to that. And we may revisit it at some point in the future. Another side note about those three missed episodes that was uh, during that stretch where, like, I was not feeling well for a while. So I was, like, groggy every morning that we did the, the... The last one we did was the only one that I felt fine. But, like, those first couple ones that we lost, I was kind of out of it when we did them, too. So mm-hmm. uh, probably part of the reason I didn't feel great about that hip-hop one as well is I just, like, I was having trouble um, being present at that moment. Okay. Well, I, I think uh, along the, the lines of you're always your own worst critic, uh, I didn't really notice that so yeah i think you probably uh did better than you felt like you did probably so, i'm pretty so. impressive <laughs> but not humble <laughs> i did that at work the other day um one of my employees was like this is this is the the best job i've ever had or something to that effect and i just said you're welcome ah. and another employee was there and like started cracking up like paul what, come on you know i was like I, sh- I know what I do. I know I make this a good job. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so anyway, so that that's a little bit of uh, why there might seem like a gap in our talking, and and you know maybe we refer to things that disappeared. Um, although if anybody listens to us and pays that much attention, I'm surprised by that to begin with i mean it was like the same uh, there was some uh action figures there was some junji ito some other manga blah 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 probably some x-men yeah you're all caught up now <laughs> yeah pretty much and yeah. Uh, i'm pretty sure we'll end up having a junji ito episode at some point uh because i have 
procured two more Junji Ito books. You've procured several. Yes. Uh, I got that one that you that we actually talked about in one of the missing episodes, so I know we'll revisit this because I really enjoyed talking about the story, and you know which one I'm referring to. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we'll definitely re- uh, revisit some of that stuff, uh, just kind of naturally anyways. Today, though, we are doing our second part in our Sandman read-through, and we are reading uh, The Doll's House Trade. Uh, you heard me right, you're going to listen to us read it, so be prepared to sit there and listen to silence for a couple hours while we do this, and then we'll talk about it. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, maybe we should just edit out the part where we read it to the listeners and then just discuss it. A logical choice. Okay, um, all right. One comment I was making to Sean right before we started, and I decided I wanted to start recording uh, so we would capture it, is uh, we were talking about art. One, I, I just got a hardcover collection. They're starting to... DC Black Label is releasing uh, deluxe editions of the Sandman. Like, I didn't look into any details, so I really hope this is, like, a planned thing that they're going to carry through the whole series, which I don't know why they wouldn't with Sandman. It's finished. It's established. There's no reason why they would start doing it and be like, no, nah, this isn't working, you know? It ends with uh, Sandman Midnight Theater, which I had read some of this before when I was trying to read uh, Sandman Mystery Theater, which, just putting the pieces together in my head, I believe that this must have spun off into that series that became its own series. This is, uh, it's written by Neil Gaiman, plotted by Matt Wagner, from a story by the two of them, painted by Teddy Christensen, cover art by Dave McKeon. But so I was looking at it, and it really struck me how much more I liked the art looking at it physically instead of looking at it digitally. Cause when I tried to read it before, uh, was on, was on my, my Kindle on Comixology Unlimited. So yeah, I'm not sure. I'm also like, I'm looking again, I'm not a hundred percent positive if this is what I read or just similar. I don't know. I gotta dig into it a little bit more, but it got me thinking about that. And one of the comments I was going to make to Sean was, I don't know, I'm still talking to the, the listener, not you. One of the comments I was going to make to you, Sean. Oh, yes, Paul? What, what was that? <laughs> one of the barriers for reading digitally for me was uh, the size. I, I do not like guided view. I like to be able to see the whole page. Oh, me too. I never use guided view. Yeah. I, I get where it works sometimes. Like Sometimes at work, I'll read comics uh, on my phone in guided view, because that's too small to try to do the whole page comfortably. Uh, but it's stuff that doesn't matter as much. Like... um I don't know if you took part in all the free Scooby-Doo comics they had at one one time. So I was reading, uh, like, Scooby-Doo Team-Up. Like, how much do I care about the layout of Scooby-Doo Team-Up? Like, it's just kind of for fun reading quickly. Um, but stuff like this, I want to be able to see the whole page layout. At the very least, if you're doing guided view, you can do the... Um, it, there's a lot of settings in, like, Comixology, I know, where it zooms out either at the beginning of, the, uh, of reading the page or at the end of reading the page. So you do get to see the whole layout. But so that was one thing I had to do is I got a 10-inch Kindle instead of using a smaller Kindle. And it really made the difference. Once I got that, it, it just opened the doors for me reading digitally. Uh, but looking at this book, which um, I've been wanting to get Sandman physically for some time. Um, I had the first Omnibus at a time, and it was just so like ungainly to read. I ended up selling it and got enough from selling it to buy the whole run of Sandman digitally on a sale. Like back when I was starting to read digitally more. When you say omnibus, do you mean like the the absolute edition? No, not the absolute. I mean the omnibus, the like four inch thick book. Oh, it's it's like uh, I think two or three volumes carries the whole series. It's big. Okay, yeah, I don't have that. Yeah, 
I'm reading the Absolute Editions. I have those. They're the oversized hardcovers with the kind of like slightly leather finish in slipcases. They're gorgeous, gorgeous copies of these books. Um, I got them as uh, gifts from a couple friends one year for my birthday. And man, they are just such a treat. Uh, those, I, those are good friends. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I couldn't believe it. It was just... Uh, uh, really astounding, and it it makes it more enjoyable to read in in a weird way. When I have this just incredible, beautiful version of the printed books, it's 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 really really great. Yeah, I would I would definitely love to have the absolutes. Um, I've had one absolute before. I found it used for a very good price, and I ended up uh, when. When I needed the money for something or other, uh, I sold it to a friend for basically what I paid for because I got such a good deal. But I had it in my collection for a little bit, and just being able to like see the absolute and you know the the size and the layout and it just it is it's very very nice, but also quite expensive, which is why it, that would be prohibitive for me to try to get the whole series of Sandman. So I'm excited about these deluxe editions because they they collect two trade paperbacks essentially in one book this one has that sandman midnight theater so it has some some bonus material too and it's a 50 dollar cover price but who spends 50 like who spends full price on a book i traded some stuff in the um i paid 40 dollars minus whatever uh the trade in i had was so i got it for a really good price uh so that's attainable for me so i'm going to slowly get these as they come out i'm excited about that cool so i like me some sandman so you- trades aren't cheap either man and there's Trade a lot backs. of them, yeah, because yeah. this is to get through just the the basic core Sandman story of issues one through seventy five plus two specials is ten trade paperbacks, and mm-hmm. then there's a couple other add on things that you can consider part of the read or not, depending on your take on it. But yeah, it adds up. Definitely. So you said that some of the art looked better on printed page than on digital and i i think i mentioned that i think it's because a lot of this art is it feels a little rough and almost sketchy and the illustrators for the bulk of this are mike dringenberg and malcolm jones the third Uh, chris bocciolo does a fill-in issue also which is really cool and michael zuli does the issue that i know we'll talk to about hop gadling at some point but most of it is Mike Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones III. And they do have this very kind of loose and sketchy way of drawing. And I think on digital, it would look maybe just kind of incomplete. But versus when it's printed on a page, it looks like it's meant to be more of a... Uh, abstract is the wrong word, but kind of like l- loose and sketch-like in in how it's drawn. And I think that that does come across better on the printed page than digitally. They definitely, like, I'm looking through the first issue, Tales in the Sand, and uh, that was one when I was, when I started reading this trade, obviously that was the first thing I read, and that struck me a little bit. The the art just didn't quite seem as engaging as the first trade. Um, But looking at it on the printed page, like you're saying, definitely, uh, like th- that one stands out more. It wasn't really a hang-up for me through most of the story. I think you know the, the style of art kind of changes after you get past that first story. 
The really big difference is when I got to the um, the Sandman Midnight Theater, and I realized in looking at it that a big part of the reason is it's fully painted. And that's mm. one thing I've always felt strongly is that painted art struggles more with digital also. I, I don't know what it is, like if it's just the, the art being lit up on the screen rather than it's on the page and the the light hitting the, the page makes a big difference with how it feels. And painted work just seems to work so much better when it's on a physical page rather than on a lit up screen, in in my opinion. Yeah, I I totally understand what you mean. I could list tons of, of examples of that. Rye was, I think, my first time experiencing that for mm. Valiant. Though in a weird way, just to totally go on that tangent, because it's uh, such highly digital painting that um, Clayton Crane does, that does work for me digitally because it seems like he's not at all trying to hide the fact that he's working digitally, that he's a digital painter as opposed to a traditional painter. So in a weird way, like that one, I'm okay with reading digitally as opposed to like uh, a Matt Kent who's hand watercoloring stuff where I think that that doesn't translate as well to the digital page. Interesting. Yeah. But hey, that's a, a kind of a interesting different strokes for different folks thing. Yeah. So w- what I thought we should do is uh, not assume that everybody listening has read Sandman, but and spend like 10 minutes uh, talking about this to those listeners that have never read Sandman. And then we can dig into the rest of the conversation, uh, assuming everybody has read it because this is worth reading. I think. And I also think that amongst Sandman volumes, this one is very much worth reading. And I think of this as one of the key Sandman volumes, one of the key stories to the kind of overall arc that is the 75 issues of Sandman. Because I feel like half of Sandman you could just not read and still get the plot like the main plot about who Morpheus is, what happens to him, what he goes through and what his, the final conclusion of his story is. And I think that those volumes would be the, the first one. And then this one, the doll's house and then season of mists. And then probably jump to, uh, what's the one where they go looking for his brother, um, I I can't even. I remember. don't remember. Off the yeah, top I can't. Of my head. I can't it's remember. Been, it's now. been a while since I've read that one. Yeah, and then you could go to kindly ones, and that's kind of it. And you could skip. There's three volumes of what are essentially short stories or very short story arcs, and then there's a game of you, which is. I think a really good story, but not as critical to the overall story. And then there's the final volume, which is kind of more of like a denouement, I guess. Denouement, is that the right way to say it? I I can never remember. Yeah, I'd go with your second try there. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) I speak French. And, um, but this volume, I think, is really key to the overall story in that it it tells one of the key events of what's going on and establishes some of the key plot relationships between Morpheus, the 
titular character and especially his relationship with Desire, his sister. Yeah, you start to see a lot more of the interplay between uh, the siblings and the the positions of the siblings also, where um, I think Morpheus and Death are two of the more critical siblings, and like they make it clear that Desire is uh, you know a step below as far as uh, you know the the critical role they play. But it is really interesting seeing how Desire screws with uh, his her brother and. Uh, it's been a while since I've read this. I know the first two trades are probably the ones that I've read a few times, and you know, trying to reread the series, I would get a little bit in and then kind of stop. So I, I honestly don't even remember what the third trade is or what's in it, and I won't until I, I look at it. Uh, but these two were the ones that I really remembered. For anybody who's thinking or checking out Sandman also, the first two trades are definitely the most horrific feeling. Like, this is the the... Most grotesque horror story, I think, in the whole series. Yes. And there's definitely grotesque moments later on, but this one is, is um, like, I remember the first time I read these, and I definitely, like, had to have a reason to want to keep going, because this wasn't really my cup of tea. That's changed some over time now. I'm, I'm definitely discovering that I like horror more, and discovering the difference between good horror and stuff that's just there to be graphic. But yeah, so if, uh, if these first two volumes interest you but also deter you a little bit i would definitely say like go past them and i think that uh you'll you'll find that the the groove kind of changes and it gets a little bit easier to settle into once you get past this point yeah absolutely this is definitely the most nightmarish of volumes i think and a lot of that has to do with that one of the i guess the biggest antagonist in this is a literal nightmare (laughs) that has uh, stepped out of the dreaming and into the real world. Yeah. And so that uh, kind of informs the the type of story that this is. But this story is, it used to feel very disjointed to me. And it felt very random to me. And I didn't quite understand it. And I I do, I think, understand it a little better now. And that actually came about as from listening to the audio production of it. And this story feels like it follows these very kind of different characters through their journey and what they're, what's happening to them. But they're all tied together in a way that all comes together at the end. And uh, so if you are reading this, I think it's important to know that it's meant to start off kind of slow and it's meant to jump around and show these stories of these different characters and maybe not make all that much sense as it's happening. But by towards the end, it does all start to get pulled together. Yeah. I was pretty impressed with that. I remembered bits and pieces of this and seeing those bits and pieces come together was, uh, was quite satisfying. Yeah. So the, the first issue in this trade though is tales of sand. Uh, which is telling the story. So in in the first volume, we see Morpheus stumble across a past lover who is uh, now like a prisoner in hell, right? Yeah. So Tales in the Sand uh, tells that story, and it's presented in the way of uh, of two members of a tribe. One is becoming a man, and their kind of ceremony for doing it is going off in the desert, and 
Uh, the, the young man goes and finds a piece of glass. There's like natural glass around the desert. And then he finds that, brings it back. Uh, and the older man, I, I believe just tells him, go find something. You'll know what it is when you find it. And that's yeah. what he finds and brings back. Interestingly, then, I do yeah. want to point out that that shard of glass he brings back is in the shape of a heart. Yep. And I think that that is important because I think that a lot of, I think that symbol of the heart is becomes important to what this entire story is all about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so he comes back. the The, the old man tells him the story uh, of a past city that was there, and the queen wouldn't like find a, a husband. Basically, like she couldn't find anybody that she could love. And then uh, one night she sees Morpheus uh, in, you know, he, w- one thing we see and we saw it in the first trade is that he presents himself to whoever in the way that they would see him. So, um, you know, she's uh, uh, African. So he is African in her eyes. So we see him as in this different character. I think this is the first time where we get a bigger story rather than just a glimpse of him being viewed completely different. I thought that was interesting, especially considering, you know, when the uh, when Sandman came out and looking at how Morpheus is attired and stuff like it's very, very um, timely fashion. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. now, like, it doesn't really fit in with the fashion of the time kind of sticks out. So, like, he feels very unique. Um, But if he were in our time, his fashion would would be more in the vein of what fashion is nowadays, I suppose. I thought that was kind of interesting. We also see that in the story where he keeps on going and meeting the um, the, the man who doesn't want to die. Yeah, I, we'll get to that issue, I think, because that's maybe my favorite issue. Of Is this. that in this or was that in the first volume? That's in this. Is it? Okay. Yeah. I was I was thinking it was in the first. Yeah, I really enjoyed that issue. So, yeah, so she, she, sees, she glimpses Morpheus. Then she goes to try to find him. And the Bird King ends up helping her figure out how to find him. She goes and finds him. You know, he, he's not trying not to be found because uh, even he knows that loving a mortal uh, can't lead to good things. But they they hook up, essentially. They fall in love. She tries to escape him, ends up killing herself uh, after doing other things to try to dissuade him. And he gives her the chance to decide to to be with him. And she continues to deny him, and that's how she ends up being cast into hell. Uh, so this was Morpheus really getting his heart broken, and um, she did love him, but she knew that that love led to destruction. It led to the destruction of her city, and it was going to lead to more destruction because it wasn't natural. Yeah, so that that is the story of how she ended up in hell, and it also shows a lot of Morpheus's heart, where he's had heartbreak and pain and had to... Uh, you know, do things that were difficult. You know, he had to let her fall into hell and, you know, for, for her actions when he tried to save her. And she denied him because she knew that her own suffering didn't matter compared to the suffering it would cause. I see this one more as his pride was broken rather than his heart was broken. Because, yeah, a bad breakup, maybe you think, I wish that person would go to hell. But I think, you you know, don't usually really actually literally think that which is the case of morpheus he literally thinks i want this woman to go to hell for eternity and 
it seems like more so it's it's his pride that was broken. He says, you would dare not be my queen? Like, I'm offering you everything. Like, who are you to turn this down? Fine. If you're going to turn down me, the almighty dream king, then I'm going to send you to hell. It really feels like it's a lot of his, his pride in who he is that is broken by her and not just his heart. I disagree. Like, I think that's an aspect of it, but I think it's still his heart. Because the thing is, she's not going to hell because he casts her there. She committed suicide. She's going to hell because she committed suicide. He can intervene for her because he has that power. And, you know, as we saw in the first volume, he has a relationship with hell, even if it is a tenuous one, you know? But she she's not going to hell because he wants her to go there. She's going to hell because she killed herself. Hmm, and okay. when we see him see her in the first one, she's begging for him to intervene and he says no not yet because he's still heartbroken hmm okay yeah that's an interesting read yeah when you break uh you know an endless's heart you know what what's the price you're gonna pay like one they have immense power he's not really he's not actually flexing his power on her he's just not flexing his power to help her so for him like it is a, a and he definitely presents it as pride but i think often when you have great power and you actually are hurt you know, inside, you bluster up and, you know, fluff up your your power and say, you know, how dare you do this to me? I'm so powerful when you just got hurt the same way that literally anybody could get hurt. So I, I think I think it's kind of both parts, but I think that that, that is the one case uh, and that's why they've made such a big deal out of it where he was truly heartbroken. Hmm. Okay, that that is uh, interesting. I didn't quite put that together that she was going to hell because of she killed herself but i do think there there's something there also that sticks with me and i think a lot of this overall arc and also this actually this entire series is about the ways that morpheus is like humans and the ways that he pretends not to be and mm-hmm. i think that that is a lot of the conflict that he goes through in the that he he's has this he's is kind of torn between experiencing human things but not willing able to ex- accept the humanity within himself and i i do kind of see this as that is that he can't he can't like he wants her to come up to his level of uh like godly kingliness but he is unwilling to go down to her level of humanness and have just kind of some human decency. And I think we're going to see more of that. And this that's kind of what this arc means to me. It's really that the first telling of those bits of stories about Morpheus coming to terms with having to be more human in the way that he approaches things and be less of the god that he thinks he is or wants to be or assumes he should be and to just kind of relax and be more human yeah and i think there's a lot of interesting things that we'll discuss as we go through too with uh even is are are those things right like you know does he need to be his role as a god like is him being human just him playing or is it something important like is is he human like you know for us as as people like we need to explore ourselves in those ways but does he you know, is it him playing like the creatures he sees and he, you know, are, you know, he plays with, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of things that we'll get into that. Uh, one of the things I love about discussing this with you 
is uh, we see different things. And sometimes it's like, oh, yeah, I didn't notice that. But oftentimes it's like, no, we interpret this greatly differently. And you don't always get that discussing stuff with people. So I've really been enjoying that. Yeah, well, I think this series, more than anything to me, feels like one where it is very open to interpretation. And I think one of the things that is so masterful about it is that it's written and delivered in such a way to include so many very truthful feeling experiences that it's easy to take many different things away from it. I think that you could read what happens to Rose, Rose Walker throughout this series and take away something from that. Or you can see what Morpheus goes through and then take something away from that. And I think it's possible to take different things away from it because he manages to just capture a lot of real truth of existence is maybe a good way to put it in it where there's so many different bits of truth of existence that some part of it is going to resonate with you as the reader and that may differ from person to person and it can also differ from reading to reading because I think that this take of it, my take of it, that this is a lot about Morpheus having to learn how to be a little more human. That's not something I picked up on on my first read through or even probably my second read through. It's taken a couple read throughs and looking at it in the context of the entire series to start to look at it that way. One other interesting uh, thing I'll point about, because I've, I've mentioned a couple times how I've listened to the audio production of this recently, and I was kind of critical of the audio production in that I felt like it was like a, uh, um, what, what's what's the word, like an abridged version of the comic where it's just kind of like telling you, hey, here's what happened in the comic. But this story in particular, The Tales in the Sand, worked really well because the story is an oral tradition of one person telling a story to another. And so this particular story actually translated really well into the audio format because it actually more closely resembled the type of story that it was telling, where the comic actually feels further away from what it's trying to be rather than closer to what it's trying to be. And so that was kind of kind of neat. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to listening to that. I got that on Audible, but I wanted to wait. I think you told me it has material from the first three trades. So I wanted to wait until I read that before I started listening to it. Got it. Yeah, it's basically what it is. It's the contents of the first absolute. Okay. And so the third trade kind of jumps around. So it's probably going to include stuff from the first half of the first trade, if I remember right. I can never quite remember how all those short stories are collected yeah. that are interspersed in there. That's cool. I'll definitely finish up the third trade entirely before I read it to be safe. Uh, so I, I was going to jump into then kind of like the meat of this story. I was just going to also. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> Great so, minds think alike. So we turn yeah. the page and get the first page of, of the doll's house. Now, the first thing that jumped in my mind when I saw this first page, which I didn't remember parts of this as well as I thought I would because uh, it's been quite some time um, and so I turned to the first page and the first thing I think is like oh look bloodshots in this 
<laughs> uh, so, yeah. Um, the other thing that I, I recognized, and this is a, um, a, a personal growth thing, uh, a, a reflection of the change in how our society engages with stuff. But so the character of desire is, um, is ambiguous, right? Like sometimes he's male, sometimes she's female, sometimes, uh, they are like non-gender specific, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember when I first read this feeling uncomfortable with the character because of that. And I mean, this was more than 10 years ago Mm -hmm. and now I have no problem with it. And, um, I think that that really greatly represents the the change in our society as far as gender norms and people's identities. And yeah. it like it kind of blew me away. I was like, "Wow, that is that is the clearest representation I've had to see like 10 plus years ago now and to see how society has changed." And um also like I guess I'd say like I'm I'm proud of myself in that I I adapted and I'm not you know, sitting here at this point and still being like, no, you know, this is this and that is that. And like, it really, I, like, I felt very different about the character because of that. Um, much more comfortable, definitely. And it was, I don't know, it just, it, it was, uh, very surprising to me to see such a clear example. Yeah. It is really interesting how much the character of desire captures what we now know as non binary mm-hmm. gender identification. And uh, in a lot of ways, I think Neil Gaiman was somewhat ahead of the curve um, in terms of representing people of different orientations in a lot of ways. And I think that that is uh, pretty cool because it does help me understand that because growing up as a very straight white man, some of the like these non-traditional gender identities it's like they don't quite make sense to me like just kind of naturally and i don't say make sense is like that's not right but make sense in terms of like i don't quite understand it and that's not saying i don't want to understand it but it's just not doesn't come naturally to me to kind of understand that oh yeah that's an experience that somebody has in, in a way that a person is but reading this character helps me understand that a little bit more. And so having that real world uh, relevance to this character, uh, I think makes this character mean a bit more because when I first read Sandman, I don't think anybody like I'd never heard the term non-binary in terms of like uh, a gender identification that just wasn't a thing 20 years ago. Um, that was at least widely talked about and I'd never been exposed to it, but now I, I am exposed to it. And so that character means a little bit more and helps me kind of understand the world and certain people's, uh, experience a little bit more. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. That, that's one, definitely one thing that stood out to me with this story. Like I was, I was kind of taken aback and like, it's, I think it's always kind of nice when you can look at something and see, how you've grown in your own understanding of stuff, even, you know, even understanding that with, even with growing in our understanding, that doesn't mean that we understand it fully. You know, you always got to be looking to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, so pretty quickly, one of the things I like about this story too, is you see how the sigils are used, uh, amongst the, the siblings. Mm-hmm. 
So we're we're in Desire's uh, dwelling, and she wants to meet with her siblings, and she goes and gets this ring that is, uh, oh, which sibling is it? It's Despair's Despair, sigil. there we go. I, I, I lost the name there. Uh, so she gets Despair's sigil, uh, which is this horrible little hook ring. Um, Despair is, Despair's uncomfortable. <laughs> Despair is one that is always uncomfortable to read because, like, man, they do a good job of making you get a hint of what Despair might be. Uh, but so she contact um, she you know here uh, desire is a is a she at the moment and she contacts despair and I just like I love the the sigil play like it really gets into the um, like the the magical or mystical side of these beings where they have this like just representation that they use and I, like that's all they need to be able to contact their sibling who is wherever they are you know mm-hmm. and it also hints at a couple things for instance we've been exposed to death and so we can guess that the onk is her uh, symbol i'm not sure if we've been exposed to destiny yet maybe only in the briefest ways i think maybe in the first arc there may have been something about how destiny stands at the crossroads as like a quick little takeaway panel or something yeah we see a book which is obviously destiny we see a blank screen and we don't really know what that means at this point but it is going to become relevant quite a bit later and we're going to start to understand what what that means and i think that that's a, a nice touch how it shows the foresight into what the story is and what's going on here that that little detail at the time doesn't really seem very meaningful but adds up to something very meaningful in the long term yeah i am concerned about our pace if we like kind of recap every single issue and every single beat i'm kind of thinking maybe we follow the main story arcs of the characters like talk about rose and then talk about jed talk about the serial convention and then talk about the the conclusion so you don't think we should spend 10 minutes on each page? <laughs> I, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I don't think I can be here till noon <laughs> talking right. about this. I'll let you set the pace uh, from here on out. I, I think you are more well acquainted with the story. Uh, so you, you can carry it from here. Okay. So we get introduced to the main character who is Rose Walker. And we find that Rose is on a mysterious vacation to England and with, with her mom and they're brought there by they, they don't really know who but eventually they find out that the person who essentially gifted them a trip to england is rose's grandmother and rose's mom's uh mother who is unity kincaid who we met in the very first issue of sandman who was the lady that had the sleeping sickness and could never stay awake and um, she eventually she basically lived her entire life until she was an old woman asleep. And then she woke up at the very end and she's the one that says, I, I dreamed that I had a baby. And we find out that that baby is actually Rose's mother. And so Rose Walker is Unity Kincaid's granddaughter. And um, I think we start to see that 
Rose seems to have some interesting experience with the dreaming, and it isn't really explained what, but she uh, has this sequence where she kind of journeys through the dream world, sees Morpheus, and Morpheus explains that, oh, hey, well, we have a vortex, and it's the first one we've got. And they say, well, we're looking at it, and it's Rose. And then she wakes up, and she kind of starts to has this kind of weird experience with these dreams. I don't have too much to say about th- this kind of aspect of it, um, other than it, it kind of starts to set the, this tone of that Rose is somehow connected to the dreaming, and we don't really know why or how or, or what all it means. Yeah, you start to see the, the the pieces like even here. I mean, maybe it's just you know looking back in hindsight, but you feel like there's these different you know um, threads of the rope spreading out, and you know you're gonna we're gonna eventually explore each one and see how they weave together to make the you know the the rope that is the story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like you bring back unity, you start to see that um, you know that thread that was left loose in the first volume of her having a baby is something that is going to be more consequential and it becomes very consequential. Yeah. So Rose's mom stays in England with unity, but Rose comes back to the United States to search for her brother, Jed, and she moves into a house and I think it's in Florida with a bunch of very eccentric characters and they're all just kind of very strange in the, in their own way. And um, she starts to search for her brother. And she's kind of tracking him down, trying to figure out where he could end up, could have ended up. And I'm kind of jumping through several issues because I'm kind of following the, the thread rather than like the, the beats of each issue. And then she eventually finds out that her brother, well, was with, I think his dad and then the dad died and then he went and moved in with his grandfather and then the grandfather died. And so now he's with his aunt and uncle. And so that's when, uh, Rose Walker with the help of Gilbert, who is her big, uh, burly upstairs, gentlemanly neighbor, go on a search to their aunt and uncle's house to try to find Jed. And, uh, that kind of, jumps over to Jed and the thread of what he's going through, where we find out that he's basically locked in the basement of this aunt and uncle, and they are collecting the money from the state to take care of them. $800 a month, they say. Basically, it's like the welfare check to take care of this this child, but they just take the money for themselves, keep him locked up, uh, feed him scraps, beat him, treat him terribly, and it is pretty darn awful. Um, and we get introduced to this with this really cool, um, these Little Nemo and Slumberland sequences. Yeah. And have you have you ever read uh, Little Nemo? Uh, I haven't read it, but I've been exposed to it some, so I was familiar with it. Okay, and it's it's just like this. It's very strange comics, and it always ends with a panel of little Nemo waking up or falling out of bed or something like that. 
and so it's it's just very interesting and this starts to get into the i think the horrificness of this where when we see jed wake up in the last panel he's like in in a puddle of his own urine or being uh bitten by a rat or something like this and we start to find out that he his dream life is very vivid and his dream lives are this weird weird world of dreaming where there's these four characters which is the hector hall sandman his wife uh, lita hall and then these two characters brute and glob and basically they are telling little nemo type stories in his head and that's another thing where it's another thread added to this that oh, i think we'll we'll find out um what that's all about yeah i think this is probably a good spot to take a step back to and say that like one of the concurrent like major themes of this is that uh, morpheus discovers that there are four dreams that are missing Mm, yes yeah so this is where this we start to see this uh take effect in other parts of the story so the four dreams that are missing is brute and glob who we just introduced uh the corinthian and fiddler's green so we haven't heard anything about the Corinthian or Fiddler's Green yet, but Brute and Glob, this is uh, their part of it. So there are four dreams that uh, escaped the dreaming uh, in Morpheus's absence, and um, this is Brute and Glob's part of the story. And I think that that then jumps to the Corinthians part of the story, and this is, I think, the the truly horrific part of it. Because the Corinthian is a nightmare, and what we start to see is little bits of story told from the first person perspective of a character where he is essentially murdering and maiming people and mostly it looks like young boys and it is really really awful but it's told in this uh it's i i hate to say that it's told really well because it's such an awful thing to be depicting but it depicts how horrible it is really well and it they do a really interesting thing where he he takes off his glasses and you see the glasses coming off from the first person perspective of the corinthian and how people lose their mind when he takes off his glasses and there's something truly horrific going on when he takes off his glasses and um we'll find out what that is a little bit later and so the Corinthian, we find, is registering for a convention of some sort. And uh, we'll get to what that convention is, but he's essentially on his way to Georgia to um, go to this convention or this meetup of some kind. And so that's kind of uh, one of the, the other threads. So we have these these different threads of... Rose Walker's looking for her brother, her brother being trapped in the basement with these two dreams, Brute and Glob, creating dreams in his head. The Corinthian, who is a nightmare uh, on the loose, killing people and heading to um, into Georgia. And lastly, uh, Morpheus, the Sandman, on the hunt for these four dreams that are um, on the loose. And I, I think the first time and maybe the first couple times I read this story, I felt like these were all just kind of these weird random bits that seemed kind of disconnected. And this whole story just felt 
disjointed to me because it jumps from like this little Nemo storytelling to this terrible stories about this kid in a basement to then the Corinthian and then Rose just like interacting with these weird roommate characters and going on a road trip with uh, Gilbert. But now I, what I, I start to see is like this story actually mirrors what we're going to find out that Rose is where she's the, the dream vortex and that these are all these different threads that are like spiraling in on each other until the very end. And we'll have two threads kind of spiral together and become one. And then that will combine with another thread. And that all combines with another thread until we get to the heart of what is going on in this story in the last couple issues. And so it, it took me a couple readings to really see it that way, that it's these different spiraling threads where the the kind of spiraling of these threads and kind of mirrors the the vortex spiral that Rose is and what she's doing to the dreams. Yeah. And so that kind of helped me understand the structure of this story quite a bit more. Yeah. Yeah, this this story is just like I mean recapping it right now. It's it's just amazing how Neil Gaiman does this. This is why he's a master storyteller, but it at points it could feel like everything is so disjointed and then when all that stuff comes together it just like smacks you in the face and leaves you dumbfounded. Yeah. So I think all these threads uh, are about to come together and Rose Walker ends up at the same hotel that there is a serial convention happening at of, of all things. What a coincidence. With, what a coincidence. Um, Jed is apparently on, on, yeah, he's on the loose at this point because Morpheus has encountered Brute and Glob and basically cast them away into the the nothingness to release them from Jed's mind. Jed is just on the loose as a human. Uh, Lita Hall is brought out of the dreaming. They, her dead husband, who was the Sandman in the dreams, is cast away into the the realm of death because he was always dead. Um, and now Lita is is free. And uh, Morpheus says that, hey, the baby who was raised in the dreams that is about to be born, that baby is mine. And Lita's like, nope, <laughs> over my dead body, which is another thread that's going to become incredibly relevant in about 50 issues. Yeah, I love that thread being left there because you just, you just know that there's something coming off the end of that. Uh, real quick, so, so Jed being on the loose, uh, one note there that I wanted to make is uh, his situation there being trapped in the basement. My first thought going into seeing what his situation was, was that was uh, at the hands of Brute and Glob, like Brute and Glob were, you know, manipulating these people to put Jed in this situation so they could be in control. And it wasn't, it's just that they were such horrible people. They were his actual aunt and uncle and they did this. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's really easy to overlook that. But so while we're seeing all this horror where, you know, part of the horror here is these two nightmares uh, taking advantage of things for their own means and ends. Um, then there's the, the horror of the Corinthian, which is another nightmare. But one of the horrors here is people. Like it has yes. nothing to do with the dreaming. It's just people. And like, I, I think I, I did not, that did not hit me the same way. Like I, I kind of overlooked that aspect of it until this read through. Hmm. I think we're we're really going to see that um, coming up. This this kind of part of the story ends with the Jed 
running away from home after the Sandman kind of blows it up and uh, gets picked up by the Corinthian, mm-hmm. which we can assume something terrible is going to happen. He seems like a bad fella. So it, here it jumps to the story we, we kind of alluded to, which is the one of, this one about um, Hob Gadling. And it starts in, I think, 1389 is the year. Let me see if I can find it while you talk. I, I don't think it's in here. I think you have to kind of figure it out by historical clues and historical context. Because they don't actually list the years. But I, I am going to like recap the, the setup for this one because I think it's so good, which is that um, Morpheus and Death are basically spending some time in the world because, as Death says, you, you need to get to know them. You need to understand people, kind of reinforcing one of what I see as one of the themes of this, of like Sandman needs to understand people and understands his own humanity. And they go into a, a kind of tavern or inn or something where people are sitting around and eating and drinking and there's one guy hob gadling who basically says yeah death is a fool's game all you guys all you people you just go along with it you just decide yep okay i'll die but that's uh that's ridiculous nobody has to die you don't have to go along with that nonsense and morpheus and death kind of look at each other knowingly and say well should we do this and and death agrees like okay yep we'll do this and so morpheus walks over to him and says well if you say that all you have to do is not die then i'll meet you back here in 100 years and everybody listening to him says ah he sure got you ha ha of course blah 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 whatever what a joke there's no way you you could be back here in 100 years but then it cuts to 100 years later and they meet again in this inn. Uh, Morpheus shows up back to the same inn a hundred years later, and Hob Gadling shows up, and he's like, "Whoa! Like, <laughs> I was just kind of bullshitting <laughs> about this not dying thing, and now I like I'm not dying. Like, what's going on?" And um, real quick, so the in the beginning, uh, one of the things they do to kind of root you in the time is they make reference to uh, to uh, literary figures. And Chaucer is the one that they make reference to the beginning. So it's probably around 1370s uh, when when Chaucer would have uh, been old enough to be, you know, in this kind of position. 1370s, 1380s. Well, uh, we know that it's 89. It's oh. whatever 89. Uh, and I because I think we know that by the because of the the end of it, because I think within the world of this continuity, Sandman was released in 1988 from his globe. Okay, so that makes sense then. Yeah. So yeah, so 1389 we would say for that. Yeah, so um, they come back, and what happens is every hundred years, Hob Gadling and Morpheus meet up in this hotel, and we we start to see a little bit of the life that um, Hob Gadling lives how he his fortunes go up, they go down, and how he seems to cope with this idea that, well, now he is indeed living forever. And I'm not going to kind of dig into the details of each of their meeting because uh, it's, you know, I think people can go read it for themselves and, and get that 
enjoyment out of it. But I think the one of the key bits is at the second to last meeting, Hobbes says, you know, I think I figured it out. I know why you meet me here every hundred years. I think it's because you actually just want a friend. And here Morpheus is like, what? Me? Need a friend? You dare claim that one such as I need a friend? And I think this is, again, like attacking his pride that I, I talked about. It's his pride and his heart coming into conflict. He's he's mm-hmm. appalled that he would be questioned. But, you know, what happens at their next meeting? Well, exactly. And, and that's at the next meeting. Hob, well, at the end of the last meeting, Hob says, hey. If you come back in 100 years, it's going to be because we're friends, right? Right? And then we cut to 100 years later, and Sandman shows up, and he says, well, it's rude to keep my friends waiting. <laughs> and so I think there's just this like, just this touch of growth right there for Morpheus, where he, he does kind of finally accept just a little bit that, oh, I can, um, I, I can be a little human, and that's okay. And... Um, that is one of the reasons I just really, really love this story. This is one that I always really remember and stands out to me as one of my favorites of um, of the run is is this story. And it's nice too breaking up the uh, the weight of this overall story arc with uh, with this nice story in the middle that has nothing to do with it that uh, breaks the tension of all these serial killers and. <laughs> Nightmares yes. and murderers and abusive family members and oh, because that gets to the next issue, which is the serial convention, which is uh, maybe one of the most memorable issues of this run. I feel like this issue and the diner issue from the first volume yeah. are the two most single horrific issues of this entire run yeah and this is i remember the first time reading this it it's different it's very different the first time reading this than any other time reading this when as i figured out what this convention was that basically this is a convention of serial killers and it's not very hard to figure out it's very kind of like quick to let you know what's really going on here but i didn't quite know that going into it It, i just knew like okay something's weird here but then you quickly discover oh man like this is just serial killers getting together to have a convention this is awful (laughs) it's so so awful and at the same time rose walker is stuck at this hotel amongst all of these serial killers i i don't know like how much i want to get into like details of um this issue i think that uh, a few key things happened which is that gilbert recognizes the corinthian at some point which is a huge tip-off as to gilbert's identity which i think we've we've talked about how three of the four dreams that are on the loose are accounted for so there's the tip off of of who the fourth one is Mm -hmm. and just it's it's this interplay between there's such a suspense about rose being amongst all these serial killers 
and not knowing the danger she's in. And then all these serial killers having this convention, talking about what they do, why they do it, all these insane justifications in their mind for being what they are and who they are and what all that is about. It's, it's just really, really terrible. Yeah. I I don't really know what else to say about this other than my, this is, yeah, this issue. So, I mean, the issue spends time exploring the, um, the, proclivities of the different serial killers they all have their different things and so like it's delving into lots of different types of horror the one that is consequential in this to the progression of the story is um oh and i, I don't remember his name i'll have it right in front of fun me but land. Fan, thank you Funland. uh who they made it clear at one point in the story not to uh shit where you eat but he just can't resist because Rose looks like a little girl to him and he can't resist uh, going and and playing with her and killing her. So Gilbert had given her a piece of paper with a name on it and said, if you need to use this, you'll know when. Uh, and it's Morpheus's name. So as she's getting uh, you know nearly murdered by Funland, she grabs the paper, says his name. He shows up, saves her puts Funland into a dream where he's playing with uh, with children. One of the things that struck me about that, too, is, like, we've talked before about, you know, when is Morpheus, uh, you know, just exacting, doing what needs to be done uh, without any mercy? When is he showing mercy? And, like, here, he's showing mercy, it seems, to somebody who does not deserve it uh, just to get through the moment. So he, he saves Rose by putting Funland into this dream, gets him out of the way, but then it's like, he sniffs out the Corinthian, he's like, I gotta go t- take care of this. So, like, that's a much more pressing issue, so he, it's not about justice for Funland, it's just, okay, this is done, I gotta go take care of something now. And then we get the big confrontation. So, Corinthian is giving the, like, guest of honor speech to all these serial killers, and he's talking about like how great they are and we are true warriors of evil or I don't, he's not quite saying that, but he's, you know, talking about how we're kings of the night and we're called to this and uh, we're the uh, true American dreamers and blah, blah, blah. And Sandman shows up in the middle of this and walks up on stage and they they have a confrontation and Corinthian gets angry and tries to attack and Sandman Reminds me somewhat of when um, Sandman took on Dr. Destiny and Dr. Destiny crushed the crystal. And we find out that Sandman has become so big and so powerful that Dr. Destiny is almost like nothing to him. That Sandman just, he has nothing to it and he just unmakes the Corinthian yeah. right there. Just kind of with, with a second thought, you know, it's it seems like he's he's gearing up for this big fight. And then it's just like, no, this, this is I, I loved that too. Like Morpheus is supposed to be so powerful. This is his creation. And it really shows that he's he's back to power. And the, through this whole trade, they're building up how fearsome the Corinthian is. He's like the most fearsome nightmare, right? So yeah. powerful. So, you know, and it just shows him all throughout it, killing people and, and creating this fear. And he just unmade just like that. I love it. And then uh, Morpheus removes the daydreams from all of these serial killers who uh, use those dreams to make them the hero of their own story, removes them all. So now they like all they're left with is the reality of who they are and what they've done. 
and that I think is pretty darn powerful. That's something that always really sticks with me. And the specific line is he's talking to all these serial killers and he says, for this is my judgment on you that you shall know at all times and forever exactly what you are. And you shall know just how little that means. And I think that's such a good way of putting it that what these people are there, there is no story to make them the heroes of they are there is no grand narrative that explains what they are they're just sick terrible people nothing more than that yeah and um so i kind of uh like that as a kind of grand summation of all these people and what they're all about because this whole issue is about them celebrating what they are and sandman just takes that away at the very end and that's i think very poignant yeah it's a fantastic way to end it it doesn't need to be a big battle that makes them look powerful they're not powerful they're just horrible weak little individuals so this then leaves us at the very end of this story which is the the final two issues where i think all of this we start to find out what all this means and what this all of this has been leading to and Rose is back home in her house with all these uh, eccentric roommates and her uh, brother Jed is in the hospital recovering from what he's gone through. And we also know that her grandmother is uh, on her deathbed dying. And so seemingly everyone's been reunited and that kind of all the dreams have been taken care of. And so seemingly all the threads so far are kind of concluded. But what we find is that at night, as everyone in this house dreams, all these dreams start crashing down into each other. The walls between these dreams start to uh, evaporate and people start experiencing each other's dreams and their dreams start to um, break down into one giant dream and all these conflicting three things about their dreams start to come to light and we find out that that's because rose is the vortex which is what was hinted at at the very beginning of the story and i like that they actually just spelled it out finally in this issue of what's going on here that Rose says, what's going on? And and Dream just says, well, you see, you're the vortex and this happens once every era and you are somebody who uh, makes the the lines between different people's dreams collapse. And so it threatens to destroy all of the dreaming into one single dream, which is very bad for all humanity and will make everybody die. So I have to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) Like he's very kind of Oh, okay. At least they're fi- they're finally explaining what's going on. I really liked that we we get that explanation. And so after a lot of um drama, uh, we get like Rose is like, "Okay, it's it's time to kill me, so you know, go ahead and do it." And that is when Unity Kincaid shows up of all things of Rose's grandmother and says, whoa, 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 you're not going to kill her. You're going to kill me because I was supposed to be the vortex. But when you were captured, that got put on hold and it got passed to my granddaughter. And so 
Unity asks Rose to pull out the thing inside her that makes her the Vortex and give it back to Unity, which she does because you can do that in Dreams. And then uh, Morpheus kills Unity and saves everything, essentially. And that's the end of it. But I think just describing the what happens leaves a, a ton out of the the story because I think that there's a couple really interesting things here. The first is the glimpses into everybody's dreams that we see. I think that that is just so well done because all the dreams are so different. Like um, Ken and Barbie, who are the like disgustingly disgustingly normal couple there ken's dreams are all these disjointed things about power and money and stuff and yeah like really hit me like american psycho yes uh Mm uh-huh yeah very american psycho-ish and um barbie's dreams are this fantasy world where she's with martin ten bones and they are going on these very it feels very much like lion witch in the wardrobe type fantasy adventures that are is not disjointed at all it's very much following this very clear fantasy narrative and um then we've got like the the spider women have two very different types of dreams and um they do such a good job of visually showing the differences between all these dreams because everybody's dream looks really different the text is really different everything about the presentation really shows all these people have very different dreams. And so everybody's mind is different in this way. And I think that that helps explain why it would be so damaging for everybody's dreams to like the walls between people's dreams to crumble because everybody's dreams are so unique to them that experiencing somebody else's dreams and how they dream is going to be so mentally jarring because it's just so different than what each person is used to experiencing. I think that visually it helps show why everybody's dreams have to be different because they are so different. And I just love that about these issues. Yeah. The last little bit of the story is uh, Morpheus going and confronting Desire. Mm-hmm. And this is where we kind of see it all come together. We see uh, Desire admit that uh, he, she is the father of uh, Rose's mother. So they are the one that impregnated, impregnated Unity when she was uh, in her sleepful state. And it was all a setup to screw with Morpheus and to try to get him to kill one of his family because Rose is a blood relative. Yeah, in a way because Desire is Rose's grandfather mm-hmm. essentially. So she partially has this touch of the endless's blood in her. Yeah. And we don't quite know why that's such a big deal yet. Yeah. But that is another one of those things that is really going to matter for um, the end of this series. So in a way, this story arc really 
sets up the finale of this entire series. Like the things that make this series come to uh, the end uh, are established right here. And I think that that is pretty darn cool and pretty darn interesting. Yeah. You get more of the, the hierarchy and how things interact. Like Morpheus says basically that the, the endless are there for the people, like the people aren't the toys of the endless. So they're not just like gods. Like, you know, if we look at like Greek gods or something like that, where humans are just their, their toys and their fodder, they're there to make things uh, operate the way that they should operate. Yeah. And that, I, I think the last thing that I wanted to ask you about this is the title of this arc is the doll's house. And what does that mean to you? Or what do you take away from that? Cause that's one thing that has never quite been clear to me. I, and I have my ideas, but I'm curious what, what you find there. Yeah. I'm looking at the last page right now and they, they kind of bring it back to the, the doll metaphor uh, some here. So the the last page is desire realizing that he or she or it is in sole control of its destiny is how they say it. Um, and that it feels nothing like a doll. So I, I think this whole story is, I mean, th- this all boils down to like, we see all these huge events that like feel like really big deals to us, right? Like these serial killers, this kid that is, uh, is being abused by his relatives. Uh, you know, they're just taking advantage of him for money. Uh, on top of that, we see these stories with nightmares that are out and trying to do their own thing. In the end, it was all desire playing games with his, her brother. And so that that's where I think the dollhouse metaphor comes in is she's, she's been treating them like dolls. They're just, she's just playing with them to, you know, to play a game. Uh, and in the end, like as we go through this story, we see how these different people are really affected by it. Like Rose is one where we see a lot of change and growth and destruction in her. Uh, and, you know, at the end of that, we see her trying to get over like she's so just ripped to, to shreds by everything that the, her last little part in this story is her just trying to get back to being normal. We've seen her go through such extraordinary things that to see her at the end of the story be just like a a teenager, a young adult still living at home with like no real responsibilities, just going out to play with her brother is a big step back from all this crazy responsibility we've seen her, you know, have sat on her shoulders throughout this story. And in the end, desire is, uh, you know, put in his, her place by dream. You know, I, I think it's desires battle within their self about, you know, are they just a doll or are they not? And she, he does these things to feel in control and alive instead of just a, a player in a, in somebody else's game. Hmm. Okay. I, I like that. I think what I took from it this time reading it through is that at times all of us can feel like dolls like we're out of control of our lives, like all of the events around us are are taking control of our lives and that we're just dolls stuck in our lives w- without really the ability to, to control it. And that even that sometimes dream and desire, they feel this way, like they're just dolls being played with. And that 
that made it feel like, well, this, this idea of feeling like a doll is just a very human experience that even these non-human entities can feel. And so it kind of re-established that even these non-human godlike entities are very human and that that human experience is very uh, universal to all of us at times. I think that the whole story, like if you look at different parts of it, it's a lot of elements of different characters feeling like they're in control. And then in the end being shown that they're not, it's just a, a part of things. I mean, the Corinthian is a good example where we expect this big battle, but he's just a, a, a doll to, mm. you know, to, to Morpheus. Uh, he's nothing. You know, he, yeah. he's playing his story and Morpheus is like, this game is over and it's over. And that's all there is to it. Everything that Rose goes through, everything that her brother goes through, everything that, you know, all like all the serial killers, they all think they're this grand part in their story. And all it takes is, you know, nothing from Morpheus and their story is taken away. And then they're exposed as, as nothing, you know, just they're just. Like everything they've done isn't this grand story. It's just them being horrible, you know. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean the the whole this whole story is about how the stories that you know associate with the things that we do or are done to us are where we get the like those feelings and meaning. We see even desire in the end of it, needing to seek out meaning in the actions that are going on around them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot in this story. This is one of those stories that as I'm reading it, I feel like it's very disjointed and disparate and like, hmm, okay, this is weird and this is kind of weird. But once I get to the end, I feel like, wow, that was quite a journey. And it, it sneaks up on me how impactful this story is. And uh, that's always surprising to me because this is one that, I go into thinking, oh, yeah, this is the one where kind of a bunch of random stuff happens and it establishes some things that are important but is kind of weird. But then just – but the actual experience of it is very – by the end, feels very satisfying. It's it's like when you you got to a really fancy dinner and each of the plates is – feels like it's like two or three little bites of something and you're like, oh, man, I'm never going to get full from this. But then – by the end of this meal, you're like, wow, I feel full and everything was amazing. <laughs> that's kind of what I feel like this story arc is. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. Uh, you know, one of the things that we mentioned in regards to Jinji Ito in one of our Lost, uh, lost episodes is uh, you posed the question, is he seeking, like, is his goal to make these stories with as much deeper meaning and interpretation in it? Or is he making these great stories and the deeper meaning is there for us to find? And it's it's just what we find in his art. Uh, and it can kind of go either way. But I think it's the same thing with Neil Gaiman. And that's what makes um, not only their art so compelling and interesting, but so revisitable is uh, there's a lot more to it than just telling a story. Um, and yeah, that's... It's amazing how we can read this and reread it and find new things each time. And even just as we change, we see things differently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I think that that's probably a, a good place to end this one on. It is. Yeah. 
So uh, probably in about another month, we'll do our next Sandman volume, which I think is going to be the volume called Dream Country, uh, which is, I think it's uh, just a collection of short stories. I don't remember how many of the short stories end up in Dream Country, but uh, that's that's the next volume we'll get to. Awesome. Cool. Cool. <laughs> All right. I'm worn out well, after it. that. <laughs> I know. I know. This has been a, a long one and a deep one into a very, very meaty work here. So we'll be back for some n- nonsense next week, as usual. You know, X-Men and action figures. So <laughs> don't worry about that. All right. Uh, but until then, you can find me on Twitter at Bad Deacon, and you can find my friend Paul on Twitter at Who's Paul. And if you found this episode, you probably know how to find the rest on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or whatever you're using to listen to this. And thank you for tuning in. We appreciate it.